1: What's your biggest problem in life? You may have heard about these things called first world problems. I found a collection of these problems online this past weekend. Boy, they're really bad. Perhaps you can relate to a few that I could relate to. Uh, My pizza box doesn't fit in the fridge. That's, That's a tough one. I want to lay on my side while I'm texting, but my smartphone auto-rotates the screen. (laughs) And my favorite, I I want to eat chips, but I I can't hear the TV. (laughs) Tough times, right? We joke about those as uh, problems in air quotes, right? But we actually do complain about that stuff, right? That is, until we encounter real problems. Things like cancer. Depression, debt, addiction, or death. When life throws those problems at us, the air quotes suddenly disappear, don't they? Because these are real problems. What's it for you? What's your biggest problem right now? Well, as we kick off the next few weeks of thinking about the season of Advent, that is the coming of Christ to earth, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning this morning. And see that ultimately, we all share a common problem. And it's the biggest problem in the world. So in Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, we see that God creates the world. And he creates it not just so-so, not just good enough to get the job done. No, repeatedly throughout chapter 1, we see that God made this world very good. The last verse of chapter 1 reads, And God saw... Everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And as the story continues into chapter 2, we see that Adam, the man God made in his image, is given a wife, Eve, and they're innocent. They're naked without any shame. No guilt to cause them to want to hide or be afraid. But then in Genesis 3, which Daniel just read for us, everything hits the fan. So with our time together this morning, let's just answer two questions from this text. First, what is sin? And second, is there hope? So first, what is sin? Look there in verse one. God has created this perfect world, this beautiful garden, these happy people. He's created them to find all their joy and fellowship with him. Everything around them just reminds them of his glory, But then comes an intruder, a tempter, this serpent. We don't see it here, but later, especially in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see clearly that this serpent is the instrument in the hands of Satan himself. And in verse 1, the serpent begins to implement his strategy, this plan to pervert the very good creation of God. He slithers up to Eve and says, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And so begins the first game of he said, she said, right? The first thing the devil does is question what God has said. And he does so masterfully because if you go back to chapter 2, you'll see that really wasn't what God had said at all. That's why Eve corrects the serpent in verse 2. Satan's the first dishonest journalist, right? blatantly misquoting God's command. God hadn't told them not to eat of any tree. He'd given them free reign, almost free reign to eat of anything they wanted. How gracious of him. But he had determined to test them by keeping this one tree off limits. That's what he'd said, serpent. You stand corrected. But the serpent's tactic still works because Eve's trust in God and what God had said begins to erode. She explains what God had said back to Satan in verse 3, but then the serpent goes in for the kill in verse 4. He pounces. Now that he sees there's a glimmer, a hint of doubt in Eve's mind as to the trustworthiness of God's word, and it's percolating in her brain, the serpent goes in for the jugular. You will not surely die. That thing God said, totally not true. You'll be fine. It's clever the way Satan dangles sin in front of Eve. It's so clever that it still works on us today. Friends, sin is unbelief. It always starts off with that question. Did God actually say? You guys need me to use this mic? All right, let's switch over. Does God really mean what he says? A a clear example of this is the way our culture is wrestling right now with sexuality. So as our world continues to expand what is acceptable and even celebratory in sexual ethics, we need to reevaluate what God has said. Teenagers, I think especially of you guys in this area, as as you get older and you get prepared to leave your parents home, you'll need to answer this question for yourself. Did God actually say, does God really have what's best in mind for me? Are the Bible's sexual ethics really what will give me the most joy? And listen, don't be ashamed to think deeply about those questions and to answer them for yourself. Trust me, the Bible's big enough to handle your questions. So as you hear that whisper from the world, does God actually say? Think carefully about your, your answer. Talk to your parents. Talk to someone in the church that you trust. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Don't be afraid to doubt what you believe. If what God says is true, it will stand up to your tests. Well, in verse 6, Satan's tactic works. Eve looks again at the forbidden fruit, and this time with a newly implanted doubt in her heart, she sees that it doesn't look too bad after all. In fact, if the serpent's right and eating it will make her like God, it looks downright scrumptious. She could be like God. God. And so she, she reaches for that, that fruit, that delightful-looking fruit, and she plucks it and, and takes a bite and shares it with Adam. And with that one action, the test is over. And they've failed. They'd been given almost everything. They'd been planted in the most beautiful of all possible worlds, and yet they just wanted that, that little bit more. Just wanted to be God. In verse 7, we see the serpent had indeed spoken the truth because Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, but not to their godlikeness, but to their utter shame. At the end of chapter 2, their nakedness was a sign of their innocence, but now their nakedness is a sign of their shame and disgrace. And so they desperately look for coverings to hide themselves, and it's not too long before they hear a sound that used to bring joy to their heart, and it just brings them dread. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Uh, Formerly, in their innocence, they had openly, freely, joyfully fellowshiped with God, but now they hide. Their their shame dictates their actions, and it drives them in amongst the trees for cover. There in verse 9, God calls out, where are you? I mean, isn't God so gracious, church? He knew exactly where Adam and Eve are. He knows exactly what has happened, and yet he asks the question. He he calls out not just to the man's ears but to the man's heart. Where are you? His words penetrate Adam's conscience like a like an arrow. There in verse ten, Adam speaks up. He admits that he now knows he's naked and he's hidden himself. and And God drills deeper. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Well, the cat's out of the bag. But Adam doesn't want to let go of his excuses quite yet. There in verse 12, he, he blames Eve. After all, she was the one who'd given him the fruit. And you see there, he's actually blaming God, isn't he? Look, look what he says. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit. You should have known better. Adam's back is up against the wall and he's he's just rebelled against God, he knows it, and, and so all he has left is blame shifting, passing the buck. Church, here we get a full orbed picture of what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God's word, God's law, and God's created order. It, it's a fist raised in the face of the Creator. I mean, we see this clearly in the thing Eve wanted above all else. What did she want? She wanted to be like God. It wasn't enough that God had created her perfect in a perfect world. Sin wants to be God, sin wants to call the shots. It it wants to be whatever it decides it should be without any God to say no. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like your heart? Sounds like mine. I hate being told told no. Church, being whoever you decide you want to be is what the world calls liberating. And what the Bible calls rebellion. A rebellion that enslaves us. We're just led along like a bull with a ring in its snout into whatever passions our sin presents us. There's no freedom in that. In the beginning, we were created not to be our own gods, but to find true joy in the one true God himself. That's where we are meant to get true joy, true satisfaction, true meaning. And so fueling ourselves on sin, on rebellion against God is is contrary to how we were designed to operate. It's It's like putting Gatorade in a Civic and expecting it to run well. It it won't. The the world is jacked up today because the world is eagerly pursuing this illusion of self-rule, self-acceptance, self, self, self. self. When what the world was created for is the rule of God. Submission to his law. Joy in his presence. And so sin is anti-creation. It's irrational. It's inhuman. It's not who we were created to be. What's more, sin is more than just rebellion. It's seeking the very good apart from the God who declares what's very good. It pursues meaning apart from the one who gives meaning. It's not just rebellion. It's foolishness. It's stupidity. It's that famous definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And yet we keep trying. Thousands of years later, we're still hitting our heads against the wall, hoping that sin will finally give us the joy we want. The Bible teaches us that we're dead in sin. Our hearts are so desperately sin-sick. Our natures have been so corrupted that we cannot even desire God anymore. We need outside intervention to even know that we need him. So what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God, the foolish pursuit to find meaning outside of him. We see throughout this chapter that its effects are destructive. I mean, that Eve's sin did not only break down her relationship with God, but her relationship with Adam and her relationship with the created order. They not only break down the, the vertical relationship, but the horizontal one as well. Sin is a contagious disease, and we're all carriers. And ultimately, sin separates itself or separates us from God Himself. It creates a dividing wall between us and our Creator. Now we cannot approach Him in our sin. We cannot live in loving fellowship with our sin. So, friend, this is your greatest problem. It's not your finances, it's not your family, it's not your relationship, it's not your career. This is your greatest problem. You are a sinner. If you're here this morning and you're breathing oxygen, I assure you, this is your problem. You're a rebel against God. You've attempted a coup against your ruler. You've lived as if you are on the throne. And maybe you think that's just a bit harsh. I mean, you're cool with God. You want him to be part of your life? Surely you're no rebel. Take an example. Were you angry this week? I was, several times. I muttered profanities under my breath this past week. I imagined bad things happening to other people. I grumbled at the things happening in my life. We understand that's not good, right? But surely that's not all-out rebellion against God, is it? Think about it. As I muttered and grumbled, who was I ultimately angry at? My anger wasn't finally directed at myself or any one person or any one circumstance. It was directed at God. Because he was the one who saw fit to put those things in my life in the first place. Up to me, I would have done that differently. If only I was on the throne, things would have gone much better. That's why I got angry. Does God really deserve my trust? Church, do you see how our sin is always our attempt to sit on God's throne? To live as if he's on trial, not us. Our church's statement of faith says it clearly. We are by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. Maybe you're here this morning and you deal with guilt on a regular basis. There's this kind of burden of shame and guilt that you can't shrug off, and the, the world would counsel you that the way you need to solve that problem is to just forgive yourself and move on and let it go. But the Christian knows better. We confess that our guilt is very real. It's too heavy to be simply dismissed. Guilt will weigh you down until you find someone to bear it in your place. And so Genesis 3 presents a a bleak picture. Sin has destroyed God's good creation. It's perverted and distorted it. Man, God must have not seen that coming, right? Or had he? Is there hope, even in this dark 15 verses? Let's move on and see and answer our second question. So we've seen, what is sin? Is there hope? Well, after Adam and Eve offer their excuses, God turns then to the serpent, the instrument of Satan. And there he lays down in in verses 14 and 15, just this heavy curse on the serpent's head. And this curse is aimed at the physical serpent, who Satan used as a tool, and also to the evil thing behind that serpent. That is Satan himself. So first he says, because you have done this serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So some people speculate, did the serpent crawl or have legs before this? Now it's in the dust. There's no way of, of really understanding that. But what we do know is that throughout scripture, the idea of eating dust is not a good thing. It's a sign of defeat and humiliation. The the serpent will go about on its belly eating the dust. So is that it? Okay, pretty cruel punishment, but I mean, he'll still be, you know, alive. God continues. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. The offspring of the woman will be at odds with the offspring of the serpent. There will be continual mutual animosity and hatred. And what will the end result be? A final battle. And in that battle, the offspring of the woman shall bruise your head, Satan. And you shall bruise his heel. Somehow, At some time, God has promised here that a descendant of the woman would get bitten on the heel by the serpent's fangs. But then would turn around and stamp its head into the ground. Church, in the midst of this bleak chapter, in the midst of this disturbing picture, in the midst of this curse, we see the grace of God. Because he condemns his creation. He separates himself from his image bearers that are now marred by sin. But that's not where the story is going to end, says the Lord. No, here God promises an offspring to come who will crush Satan's head. But not without getting bruised on his heel. Not without undergoing incredible pain to himself. Jesus here... Or God here promises a, a suffering Savior. He, he promises a deliverer. You know, many many people. I think we're even guilty of this sometimes. Look at the Bible; as just kind of an anthology, kind of like one of those heavy lit books that you read in high school. It just really doesn't have any uh, cohesion. It's good book to book, but what's it all about? as you read it, even from Genesis 3, you see the Bible is a coherent whole. It's a story with a plot and a climax. And one of these threads woven through the story is a story of warfare, a story of battle, a battle between two families, two lines of descent, two offsprings. we see this battle rear its head all throughout the Old Testament and into the new as Satan continues to try to knock off God's plan and kill any chance of of a deliverer to come, foil God's plan before a savior arrives, And then, and then he does. On the cross, the offspring of the woman is hung in agony, and Satan has done his finest work. He's killed the very Son of God. But as one author puts it, the bruising of Jesus turned out to be the crushing of Satan. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he went to bear Adam's sin. Your sin, my my sin, all the sin of those who would trust in him. When Jesus died, he didn't just die as a good martyr. He died as a substitute. He died having become sin for us. Jesus took on himself all the guilt of anyone who would repent and put their faith in him. Jesus came to be the better Adam. Adam. Remember Jesus in the wilderness before his earthly ministry kicked off? Weeks on end in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Do you you remember kind of Satan's ploy? Did God actually say? Unlike Adam, Jesus never gave in. He never sinned. He never rebelled against, against God's plan. He never sought the very good apart from the God of the very good. But then he willingly went to the cross, though he deserved a crown. And there he took all that rebellion, all that idolatry that we read about earlier in our in our responsive reading, all that hurt, all that sin on himself. In Christ, God gave us the ultimate very good. In Christ, God began creation a new a recreation the plan he had had ever since the beginning the plan to save and deliver his people from our sin so church what is sin it's it's rebellion against god that separates us from him is there hope oh yes there is yes there is Sin did not catch God by surprise. Jesus was never plan B. God was in control all along. Ever since before Genesis 1-1, God determined that one day he would send his son to bear the guilt of his creation, to bear the guilt of his people, to, as as Paul says in Romans 16, crush Satan under our feet. Jesus came to give himself up to be bruised in order to crush that serpent's head forever. He came to destroy death, as we read earlier, by dying and then rising again. And you can go back in this afternoon and pick up in Revelation and see that serpent being banished to the lake of fire forever because of what the lamb had done. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in christ if you're doubting whether all of this is true or just good religious stuff you are still on the side of the serpent you're still wondering if god's ways are best you're still thinking that your world will go much better if you're on the throne if you're in charge friend that is an exercise in futility you will never find a savior there. Turn to Christ and be saved. And church family, do you see your Jesus? Do you see that Christ is not the God of the New Testament only? He's the savior all the way back from the beginning. Genesis 3:15. He's the offspring come to crush the serpent's head. He's the promised one. He's the expected one, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one everyone was waiting for. He didn't come merely to give us the strength to make it over the hump and get into God's good grace. He didn't come to give us an extra boost to face our giants. No, he came to fight everything for us. He came to face our enemy for us. He came to substitute himself for us. He came to take our sins for us. He came to bear God's judgment for us. Is there a better savior? Have you found one? I have confidence you have not. Jesus is the only hope for sinners. He's the only answer to our biggest problem. He's our our life. Well, that we might see this, church, that we might not just use Jesus as a crutch when we're in hard times, when life gets hard, but that we might recognize and trust that he is our ever-present, precious treasure, this Savior who was put to death so that he might put our death to death, that we might pour out our lives in thankful service to him until his second advent, until he comes again. Church family, turn again to this Jesus this morning. In his death-defeating, serpent-crushing, sin-forgiving life, you live. You live in expectant hope of his coming But not just like his people did so many years ago. You live with an expectant hope that he's coming again. And and so, Lord, and so, church, may the Lord just propel us to forsake our sin in light of that. To abide in his presence, to grow in his grace. Listen, Christian, your guilt has been taken away. Your heart has been made new. New. You're free. Let's pray. God, as we come to this season of Advent, we are again filled with wonder at what you've done. You've sent your son, the offspring promised, and you've sent him to crush the head of our enemy into the ground. And so, Lord, we glory in our Redeemer. Joy has dawned. and In that joy, we rejoice. I pray that you'd be with us now as we sing praises to you. In Jesus' name, amen.